0: Fellow dog-powered sports enthusiasts, this is Chelsea Murray, and you are listening to Positively Dog-Powered, a podcast that dives deep into the real world of positive reinforcement training and dog-powered sports. Hello, everybody. I'm excited for today's episode because it is what I am truly living and breathing at my house, which is surviving the teenager or adolescent developmental phase. Um, Oftentimes people think that our puppies are challenging, but you just wait till they get into adolescence and it's a whole new ballgame. But I do often find that this is also my favorite time in some weird way, which I know my guest today uh, appreciates because it's that time where you can really begin to lay all those essential foundations. And then as soon as you're out of it, you're like, oh, there we are. All of my hard work has paid off. Um, so today my guest is none other than Camille Person with Positive Futures Dog Training. She's a good friend of mine and a fabulous trainer, and she absolutely adores teenagers. So who better to chat with us than Camille. Camille, thank you for joining us.
1: A pleasure to be here.
0: So before we dive into this topic, do you mind giving our listeners a little introduction to you and kind of how you got started in dogs and dog training?
1: Sure. So I think like most of us dog trainers, I started dog training because I had a dog that had um, significant issues and I wanted to learn more on how to help him. And then got bitten by the bug of, oh, this is awesome. Let's learn more. Let's do more. I can help other people. So that's how I got started about oh, 11 years ago. Um, and I did it also like a lot of trainers started with, you know, pet smart training while I went to school and learned all about behavior and stuff like that. And then I got to work in a really large um, training facility that did daycare, boarding type of stuff. So we had a high volume of dogs, um, which allowed me to get hands on lots of different breeds, lots of different ages, lots of different temperaments. Uh, And I initially started doing mostly behavior work, because that's what kind of got me into it. Um, So I got to deal with uh, pretty severe extreme dogs, which was obviously very rewarding and challenging, but also very taxing. And I can start going, what if We could stop it before it gets to that point. What if we could help a little bit sooner? So I started getting really interested in puppies, puppy raising, and then by proxy teenagers, because that's usually when all of those issues tend to crop up. Um, There's a reason why most dogs in shelters are
0: within, you know, the
1: six months to two years old, because that's usually when they are very challenging and people just don't know what to do, or that's when you know things um, kind of get out of hand. So I really wanted to focus on that. Uh, which I did. So I've, I would say about 90% of my client dogs are either puppies or teenagers. And I tend to do a lot of play groups with teenagers, lots of boarding trains with teenagers, so that we kind of cover, you know, anything from like basic manners to more like conceptual things. So a lot of times with my teenagers, I tend to do a lot of you know, focusing on relaxation, impulse control, things like life skills that will help them become like happy, well-adjusted adults versus like hard, solid skills like sits and stays, because um, I don't think that gets you much when you have to deal with a teenager. And I think they find it boring too. Um, So that's been my passion is to really just kind of help teenagers be better teenagers and not drive their humans crazy, but also help the humans kind of realize that, hey, there's a certain way that's going to work best to deal with your teenager. And it's not necessarily what you've heard or what you think is the right way. Um, so that's why I'm here. Yeah. You know, I think that's interesting that you brought that up
0: with teenagers. I do the same thing. I'm not working on formal heel and, you know, sit stays and down stays. And most people as they are introduced into training, you know, generally speaking, when we think of kind of traditional training, it's like, I'm going to go to a foundation obedience class. Right. And that's going to fix my problems. But for teenagers, that type of work is really, really frustrating for them and for the owner, and usually does not make things better. Um, But instead, by focusing on, like you said, conceptual training and life skill training, you can really teach dogs how to handle the world around them, right? And if I see something exciting, I don't need to lose my mind. And if I do have big feelings, how can I calm back down? How can I re-engage with my owner or my handler? And those types of skills, I think, for someone who isn't a trainer, can be really challenging to kind of understand the purpose of them and even know what you're doing in the moment. And I feel like that's one of the reasons why our teenagers are so challenging for a lot of pet owners, because the dogs are having big feelings and what generally people are taught to think of when they are training a dog are things that don't work well for our teenagers.
1: Mm -hmm. No, for sure. I, you know, none of my teenagers have, um, or considered traditional obedience skills on them or it's something that I, you know, none of my teenagers, we don't spend any time doing any type of heel. You know, the, the bar is very low on leash walking. It's please do not detach my arm from my body. Anything other than that is totally fine because again, it's hard. It's, you know, it's very taxing for them. They're out and about in the world. Everything is exciting. And then they have to walk at a snail pace next to us. And, you know, there's no flexibility. It gets really frustrating for everybody. And I also think that's why people give up because they feel like, well, that's what I was told to do and it's not working and this dog is dumb. And then it becomes, you know, the dog is an issue where it's like, well, really it's not the dog. It's just that we're not meshing. You know, we're not seeing the same picture at the same time. Mm-hmm. So with my teenagers, and I find too that, you know, especially when I work with people who usually, um, unless I've had them as, as p- puppies and we're just transitioning into like older dogs, but a lot of times people who reach out with their teenagers, like I need help. Um, for them, I think it's a relief when we kind of go, no, wait, actually, I don't care if your dog can hold a stay for 10 seconds. Like I, my dog's never, never asked to stay. Um, we're going to work on life skills, like how to manage arousal and how teach your dog how to deal, you know, with excitement and how to think when they're excited, because that's the problem. It's not that they don't know the things, it's that they can't do it when their brain is going. "Ah." So let's kind
0: of dive into that define for us what a teenager is and kind of what is going on developmentally that makes this developmental stage so challenging for them.
1: Sure. So typically, you know, what we would consider a teenager is a dog that's anywhere between six months of age to about two, two and a half, depending on um, the size of your dog. Small dogs tend to mature sooner. So typically they they reach adulthood usually by a year and a half. They they're kind of out of the um, stupid teenage period. With the bigger dogs, um, you can be in it until they're three. So sorry to break everybody's hearts who's listening. <laughs> um, and I would say also females tend to mature faster than boys. So if you have a large boy, um, you're probably going to be in it for a little bit. Uh, but I would say the, the worst of it. So when you have the most challenging is really like the beginning of it when the hormones are just kind of going left and right. So the six months to about a year is really when it's the ch- the most challenging and, and and it's you know you you can feel that you're dealing with a teenager and what we usually see with teenage dogs is um, a lot of excitability that like everything is super exciting and super stimulating even things that they've been around before now suddenly it's way more interesting um so they tend to be a lot more um interested in the environment than they were as puppies you don't have that um like honing beacon that you had as a baby puppy where they go i'm gonna take off 20 feet oh i'm far i'm gonna come back to my person uh teenagers will just go and keep going like i don't need you anymore i'm gonna go check this out this is fun bye um so this is what you'll see which means you know in practical terms it will be really hard for your dog to focus on you and you, like, in outside environments. Um, they'll have really short attention spans, so they can't stay with anything for very long. Even when they're just kind of sniffing, you'll see them move very rapidly from one spot to another and kind of, you know, see a little bit of that kind of frantic moving around the world instead of the usual puppy kind of toddle, do-bidididoo-do-do, we are going along. Um, you'll also see, um, along with that, you know, everything is exciting. Their own like internal excitement levels tend to spike, um, so they get very highly excited about very common things, and then they have a very hard time getting out of that. So they tend to stay very high in arousal, which makes it really hard for them to offer a calm behavior and think. When you're, um think of it as a sugar high when you've just you know ingested a gazillion tons of sugar and soda. Um, and somebody asks, you, can you go sit down for two hours and, and, and be chill? Um so teenagers are kind of in that constant state of arousal and they, they go into it very quickly and tend to stay stuck in there. Um, and then what you also start, start to see is um, they'll start being a little bit more aware of like themselves in relation to the world. So they'll start doing a lot more, what does that do? What if I do this? What if I do that? Whereas with puppies, you know, they they tend to be very into exploring things, but you don't have that. I am a person and I have an effect on the environment and things around me. Teenagers become aware of that. And so a lot of times that's when you will see what most people consider like naughty behaviors or, um, you know, pushing buttons or, you know, testing the limits kind of types of behaviors. And it's really the teenager trying to see, okay, what can I do? How can I affect my environment? What can I do? What can't I do? What happens if I do this? What doesn't happen if I do that? Um, so you'll see a lot more of that things that, you know, um, they weren't quote unquote rebellious before, but usually teenagers are, you know, markedly sit, No. And two seconds later, they just go sit. You're like, but why, why? Just cause I wanted to see what was gonna happen if I just didn't do it right away. Um, so that's usually like the big, Things I'll I'll see with teenagers is that excitability. um, The environment is super stimulating and very interesting. um, Really high arousal levels. Um, Oh my god, my ADHD just kicked in. And then something that um, testing the boundaries and kind of you know. Quote unquote, refusing to do things that they've done before, and a lot of times too, their social relationships will start to change when the hormones hit. Um, other dogs will respond differently to them; they don't have that puppy license anymore. Um, and especially if you have intact males, typically they get into a lot of trouble with other uh, males, neutered or intact, just because now you know they're peak males and we have to compete for for resources a little bit more. Um, so you, you'll want to be careful about that. You know, you can't just Um, go by and like, yeah, let's go say hi to every dog we meet, because those encounters are probably not gonna go quite as well as they did when they when you had a puppy. So you wanna kind of and if you have multiple dogs in the house, same thing, you'll kind of see a shift in dynamics a little bit. So that's something that you wanna be aware of, especially when you do group setting sports, you know, like races and stuff like that, where you're gonna be in a line with multiple dogs that you'll have to think about. We might have to have a big buffer zone around us and not be right in the middle of the the pack and be like, well, we'll be fine because it will probably be a little bit, little bit harder for them to kind of navigate that.
0: Yeah. I know that a lot of these things we're going to dive into more. So for anyone listening, don't worry. We're going to talk about training and how to deal with all these, these individual things. But I also think that when we're talking about teenagers and kind of talking about what is normal to see, it's so important to talk about what might be a little less common to see, or maybe if we're starting to see trends in this direction, we might need to get a professional involved. So what are some, you know, we'll say red flags or or behavior changes that uh, we might want to be a little more uh, mindful of with our teenagers?
1: Sure. So with teenagers, you know, reactivity is pretty common. So a lot of times because they're frustrated easily, um, when they're unleashed, they tend to, um, have little meltdowns when we can't really get to what we want to get to right away, um, and it also because, yeah, it's like there's a squirrel, it's twenty feet away. I can't, I can't get to it. I'm just gonna flail and scream, and then that'll make it better. Sure, that's that's perfect. Um, so that's pretty common. What I usually will, you know, kind of raise a flag in my mind is if the dog, as a puppy, was already on the shire, cautious, hesitant, sensitive type. I wanna be very cautious when they're teenagers and I usually I'll dial back our outings and explorations of a bunch because I don't wanna sensitize my dog further, especially when their brain I know cannot handle um, the stimuli. So usually we'll just do really low key, low arousal, super safe, very quiet activities to make sure that we're not just, again, feeding the monster to, you know, to say the least. If you have like a very Sociable, happy, tolerant puppy, and you see that they're starting to become reactive. Typically, I tend to worry less about those dogs and just kind of chalk it up. This is a phase, you know, just I mean, don't throw them into let's go into the farmer's market and see how many people we can yell at every weekend. Um, that'll make it better because that's also obviously going to be a lot for them to handle. But typically, I'll, I'll be less concerned if the puppy already had like social, again, good temperament, you know, that you kind of enjoy. Usually the teenage phase, I tend to chuck more of it too. Okay, this is just your brain is being weird. It's fine. Uh, what I usually will will pay really close attention to is, especially if I have dogs that live together or dogs that spend quite a significant amount of time together or in proximity, um, those changing dynamics, usually you'll start to see a little bit more resource guardy type behaviors because the teenagers start to assert themselves. They're not Baby puppy anymore who has to defer to everybody now they can be like, Well, no, I'm gonna keep my bone and you can't have it. Um, so usually I'll watch for that again. Management goes a super long way in that. So if my teenagers are all at home and join, choose we're all separated so that nobody tries to get the other one and then we don't get the problem started anyway. But that's something that I would definitely keep an eye on, especially with teenagers, because sometimes you know, it's not that they're actually resource guarding, it's just that they want to try to see, hey, maybe I get to keep everything today or steal everybody's bones. And if they're successful, then that becomes a learned behavior. And they're like, well, I can just muscle my way through everything and be a total bully to everybody and get my way. So that's something that I'll tend to be very cautious about, those kind of in-home relationships, making sure that everybody is um, still very respectful of each other and has their own space. And we're not going to going into con- conflict if we don't need to. And what I'll also be cautious about is um, something, usually it's something that I see in the home, but reactions to guests and strangers. So that's usually when you'll start to see dogs um, have feelings about people coming to their house um, and not good feelings, mostly like, I don't like you being here and I'm going to let you know. And so they'll do um, you know a lot of barking, lunging or even um, biting people that visit the house, those are things that I would definitely get addressed uh, right away because that's not part of the pro-social, normal teenage, um, you know, curriculum of becoming an adult. Usually what you'll see is the same puppy just amped up just a bit more. If you have any drastic changes in personality, those are um, urgent issues that need to be resolved because there's something at play there. It might just be that, if they're uncomfortable. It might be that the brain chemistry um, is off now that their hormones are hitting and they need a little bit more like help on that, or that they might be some kind of, you know, medical pain or anything like that, that we need to address. But yeah, any, you know, big departure from what you had as a puppy, typically is definitely a sign that you want to get um, professionals involved.
0: The other thing I think I would add to that would be while reactivity is generally common during this phase. And we do see dogs kind of transition from maybe they used to walk on leash really well and be able to tolerate other dogs' proximity pretty well. And now we're having big feelings about it. I would say that if you're unable to redirect that behavior at all, or it kind of exists in the environment without seeing it. So while these shifts uh, can be common and can be normal, if you're unable to kind of bring it back down or move it back in the right direction. That would be a good indicator of, you know, getting a professional on board and sooner rather than later, because as we know with behavior, when a behavior gets rehearsed, it it becomes reinforced and it becomes stronger and, and more normal for that dog's kind of behavioral toolbox. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to, to remind people that you know, even if you're seeing some of these shifts, if you don't have the skills in your toolbox to handle it, get someone on board because you'd be surprised how quickly you can kind of bring things back in the right direction. And it's always better to do that sooner rather than later.
1: Absolutely.
0: So as we are thinking about our teenagers And trying to maintain sanity through (laughs) training and living with them and working with them. There's obviously some key kind of changes or challenges that you mentioned earlier with arousal being one of them. Um, And this is something that usually we're not used to seeing when we have baby puppies in the house. And then all of a sudden it can be almost like night and day, like all of a sudden things that your dog didn't really care about before are like your dog gets so amped up can't control that excitement. And it just kind of tips over into when we can begin to see inappropriate or undesired behavior. You know, we might see dogs um, getting excited about seeing something and then turning around and humping, jumping, mounting on their human, um, maybe even turning around and kind of taking that out on another dog in the house. So talk to us a little bit about how you know dog owners can identify what arousal looks like and some of you know the the things we can do training wise to uh make this a little easier on everybody.
1: Sure. And an arousal is, is a tough one because you know there's good arousal because arousal is pretty much just energy right to do something productive or not that's the question. But arousal is something that you can't if you had a dog with zero arousal no one's having fun because that dog is just passed out on the couch all day and doesn't want to do anything. So arousal is good to a point, right? The problem is really when we get into over arousal, so we're past the limit that our dog can think. So usually that's what my gauge is because every dog is different. Some dogs do better in high arousal states than others. Um, Some breeds especially do better. So, you know, think of your Belgian Malinois, think of your German Shepherds. Those dogs tend to be very high arousal dogs, but they can think pretty high into their arousal and they still have really good heads on them. Uh, whereas some of the dogs, as soon as they get a little bit of excited, I can't, my brain is gone, I can't do anything. So a lot of it is dependent on your dog. But what I use as a gauge um, to kind of know if I'm still in the good part of arousal or if we've tipped over into that's too much. <laughs> Um, Is usually my dog's ability to respond to really simple known cues so usually I use a hand target that's the easiest you know they've been doing it with me since they were babies so it's a very strong strongly reinforced high history of, of getting paid for behavior and it's not very taxing And like asking for a sit, which you know involves sitting still and not doing anything, which some teenagers may be, oh, about why, I just wanna keep going. So usually I'll do hand target and I can do it as I'm walking so that we can keep that momentum and motion going. And if they can do the hand target, you know, as soon as I ask and it's nice and a clean rep of, oh, touch your hand with my nose. Okay, you're excited, but we're still thinking pretty well. Let's maybe stay at this level or just dial it back down just a smidge. If uh, the cue is completely ignored and like, I don't know what you're telling me to do. Okay, we're definitely past. And if my dog like touches, you know, but instead of doing a nice, gentle, like boop with your nose on my, they go, I'm gonna punch your hand with my nose or I'm gonna use my teeth. That tells me I'm, I'm on the edge and I definitely wanna kind of bring that back down before we go any further. I think that another,
0: you know, common thing can be food in this moment. Like can your dog, even if we can't respond to uh, a known cue like attention or a hand target, can we take food? Do we have any interest in food that generally would be considered a high value treat for the dog? So that's kind of another easy way to gauge is our brain functioning right now? Yeah.
1: Or are we <laughs> um, yeah. Can interest? we take
0: the food? Can we take it nicely? Are we yeah. taking fingers with the food, right? All of these kind of transitions away from what we would consider a normal baseline for that dog could be indicators that that arousal is just a little too high. And like you said, arousal to an extent is a good thing. You know, when we think about our sled dog sports, most of them um, are what I would consider high arousal sports. The dogs love doing what they're doing. They get amped up at the Mm -hmm. start line. They can't wait to go, but too much arousal at the start line can result in fights between dogs. Um, you know, too much arousal can cause a lot of barking and dehydration before you even get out on the trail. And if like we just talked about, if arousal is too high, that brain, that thinking part of the brain, isn't really working. And so maybe your cues all of a sudden are gone. Your dog can't on by your, your dog can't g and haw. You know, wow. these are important things that your dog needs to be able to do. So one of the things I really like about arousal, um, is kind of playing with it and seeing okay. if I can, as a teenager work on different training exercises and games that, teach kind of a dog a sliding scale of arousal. Like, can we get excited and we're still thinking and things are still good, but now before it becomes too much, let's work on bringing it back down and let's reinforce all those calming behaviors and the breathing and the stillness so that our dogs can learn kind of how to get excited, but then recover from it before it becomes too much.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, arousal, you know, the balance of arousal is obviously impulse control, And I always say impulse control is a a muscle, right? The more you exercise it, the stronger it becomes, the less you use it, the weaker it is. Um, And so with, uh, I would say 100% of my teenagers are impulse control focused work that we do. It's not leave it or stays because that's boring and nobody wants that. It's jazz up, settle down. Can I get you amped up and then ask you randomly to sit? And can we do it and get paid heavily? Um, can we do, you know, can you hold a sit while I come at you screaming like a banshee? Like, I'm, oh my God, me! Ah! Can you still focus and hold that sit even though something super exciting is happening right around you? Excellent. Now, can we do something when we're playing? Can we play fetch? And then when you come back, can you drop the ball, lay down for two seconds? Okay, now you can look at it. So that they're always modulating and moving very fluently and easily from arousal to calmness. And it's very easy, like almost like a switch that you just flip. Uh, which they can do but it does take training to get there just like us you know you can if you don't train you can't go deadlift 100 pounds but if you train regularly it's fairly easy because you have a technique your body's used to it you know how to do it really well um, so the same thing with arousal and impulse control with our dogs is we want to teach them uh, you know how to because again things the like impulse control, the traditional impulse control things like leave it and stays and waits where the dog is essentially asked not to move not to do anything for, you know, duration when there's distraction around. It's great foundation for puppies. I think it's nice to kind of set up that, you know, being polite type scenarios, Um, but it doesn't bridge the gap of uh, what what happens when your dog is already excited because especially with teenagers, they're always excited about something. And that's the issue is people go, but we've done leave it yeah, but you've never done leave it when your dog is like just in a squirrel and they're thinking about chasing the squirrel. And that's why your leave it that you practice in your living room with a kibble on the floor. is not working in the woods for real. Um, so a lot of it is, you know, being creative, but also being really thoughtful and thinking about that, of how can I get my dog to that optimal level of arousal? And then ask him to switch back to being really calm and gradually pushing the boundaries of, can I get you more amped up? And can I so, can I get the yo-yo effect of can I get you really amped up and really calm, and really amped up and really calm? And when you get to that point, typically you'll get a super really really good handler in your teenager, and you'll find that they're able to navigate life much easier because they'll start doing it on their own as well. Because obviously, just like every organism, we want stasis, right? We want to be at the optimal level of just right enough arousal to go, but calmness too, because we're not just like flying off the handle for no reason. And dogs are the same way. Um, so once they're taught where their stasis is and how to get back to it, you'll find that they start doing it on their own too. And so, you know, you'll go for a walk and you'll see a deer and they go, oh, there's a deer. And then literally two seconds later, they're like, okay, we seen it. We got excited. We're, we're over it now. Let's keep going. And or they're waiting for the queue of, can is today today we can chase it or are we walking away from it? But you have that really nice switch that happens on its own where you don't have to micromanage them for everything all the time because I like, guess a little TD is for everybody mainly yeah constantly on them
0: i you know i like too about the those um dynamic impulse control games is that their patterns oftentimes a lot of the warm up activities are patterned games and it's a really nice way for dogs to start to predict what's going to happen which if a dog is struggling with excitability it can make it much easier for them to kind of oh I know this routine I can settle into this nicely and then all of a sudden we've got a dog that can focus at no time and the other thing I think that's pretty cool about like the jazz up settle down games or like asking your dog for a short duration behavior between repetitions of a toy is that it's not the same, right? It's not like doing drills of something. So it keeps the dog engaged. And oftentimes with those games, they end up getting what they want in the end, right? So with my jazz up, settle down, maybe I bring out a coolaroo or a raised cot, and I'm saying, can you chase this flirt pole and play tug with me? And okay, now we're gonna relax. And once you know they're getting food reinforcement for that relaxation and calming back down, and then they get released to go play the game again. So ultimately that reinforcement you know, playing that high arousal game can reward that relaxed behavior. And so you really have this nice kind of circle where the dog is always getting reinforced for these behaviors that they want. And they end up looking forward to it and being able to adjust much easier.
1: Yeah. And I, I think the, the key for those games, and that's, I think that's why they work so well, is that the relaxation becomes the cue in the dog's mind, the relaxation becomes the cue for the fun part instead of being the interruption, because a lot of times that's why dogs tend to be very um, reticent to, like settles and sits and stays and then, you know, stillness in general, because it's A, it's boring, but also it's an interruption and they're being taken away from the thing they want to do, which if you have a teenager is, you know, run, jump, bark, all of this motion and excitement type stuff. So a lot of times when we do these games, we're essentially telling our dogs, if you chill for two seconds, you get to play more and they go, oh, okay, chill to play. That's right. You chill to play. Uh, and then you can add duration very easily because they catch on very quickly at all. Oh. And then it becomes a game because teenagers like to manipulate, you know, things and see what can I get away with. And so they'll go, what if I go play down on my place for 10 seconds? What, how, what happens now? You're gonna play with me, aren't you? Yep, that's right. And you wanna kind of, you know, feed that beast because then they're they think they're being smart and you know outwitting us by offering relaxation in order to get interaction. And it's like it, that's exactly what we wanted you to do in the first place. Just chill.
0: And our teenagers are super smart and can catch on to things very quickly, which you and I were chuckling about before we started uh, recording this episode, because um, our dogs can definitely develop anticipatory arousal, which has definitely happened with my teenager. You know, she got to run and harness, I don't know, a handful of times when she was uh you know, eight months last season. And the second her harness comes out, the second she's somewhere where we've done dog powered sports before it's like, she knows her second race. She was at doing a puppy fun run. Oh my gosh. The arousal that we had moving towards that start line because she knew what was happening. And she was so excited to get to do the thing that that arousal spiked, you know, way before we even got to the start line for the event. So I also think that it's important to make sure that we're being mindful about the the interactions, uh, the training experiences that our dogs are having so that, and if we start to notice, you know, signs of that, go, okay, what can we do to kind of change this picture for the dog so that they're not immediately going into a high arousal state, you know, past a point of being productive when we don't intend them to.
1: Sure, and I think, yeah, that's why I tend to do, you know, do a lot of layering. So anytime my teenagers do anything that's what I would consider like high arousal. So playing fetch, you know, um, like, Jogging in the woods, um, you know, playing with each other, stuff like that. I usually will then counterbalance it with something that's really low arousal. So if we're going jogging in the woods, we'll finish the walk with a sniffy walk and let's go. Let's go climb over tree trunks and um, up the hills. That you have to be mindful of how your body is moving. You have to slow down and really think about you know your position in 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 the environment and not just we're running. Um, so that you know the walk itself the outing itself had like an exciting part and also a calming part and it's not all or nothing it's not all boring or all super exciting Um, and also again to kind of feed into those pattern games right of teaching our dogs to move from one stage to the other and because teenagers typically cannot do it by themselves or at least not very well the more we facilitate that the easier it is and then you go home and you have a truly like fulfilled tired dog instead of we just ran 10 miles. Why are you like outside like in the backseat going, I'm ready, I'm ready. You was know, like because the brain, you know, the body's tired, but that brain is still going in that loop of ah, we're running exciting. So you want to layer in that in that way it's so much easier for your dog not to have complete meltdowns. And again, there, you know, knowing your dog and how they move into and out of arousal um is super helpful and then you know things that you especially if you're going to do things consistently so if you do powered sports and you know you want to compete i would with my teenagers even with puppies start thinking of traveling to trials setting up what does that look like because you know we're not just gonna park run out of the car and run that's not how it happens there's setup okay what's gonna happen then what do you want your dog to be screaming their heads off in the car the entire time you're getting ready probably not especially because they're gonna exhaust themselves and then they're gonna run out of gas as soon as they get they get started. So those are things I would start to work on and like set up routines and practice them with your teenagers of this is what we do so that it becomes a habit. Yes, we get excited at the start line before we run, but the 20, 30, three hours before, here's what has to happen before you get to the exciting part. Um, I remember I, I had a shepherd um, and we took it for fun just to go um, sheep herding when she was five months old. And it was just like messing around. I had no intention to do any herding, but we went and she was a baby and it was cute herding the toddler were behind the sheep and it was adorable. And we were like, cool. And we went back. So we did once for like a, a couple, like for an afternoon. And then we went back six, seven months later, she saw a sheep like in a far field and she lo- lost it. Right, you saw she want you chased sheep one time in your life when you were a baby. She said I remember, and now they must all die. We must sketch them out. Um, so you know, think of that. Um, because if you do an activity that's very stimulating and that your dog truly enjoys, and if you want to do it again, you have to think of okay, my puppy had tons tons of fun. It's very likely they're going to very strongly remember how much fun they had. So we need to proactively kind of either desensitize them, you know, if I had wanted to do herding, I would have taken her a more frequently, but we probably would have done a lot of hanging around the, you know, the field and not being in the field with the sheep and paying for walking away or just walking by and doing something else so that it wasn't this, you know, ah, super focused, sheep means we chase type of stuff. So I would do kind of those things too, so, um, you know, with the gear as well. So, you know, bringing out your dog's um, racing gear or, um, harnesses and lines and just putting them in, in you know in your house and we're actually going to go in the yard and play ball oh okay just because the lines and all the bikes come out doesn't mean we're going to run so that you you get you don't you're not feeding that anticipatory arousal loop of when you put your shoes on we're going for a walk so I'm going to scream the entire time you lace your shoes or put your socks on you know you just kind of want to backtrack that um the whole routine to make sure they're calm as long as possible
0: we uh as I was describing um, our teenager that we, that we live with you know it's the middle of the summer and so what do we do well we do other things because it's way too hot to like bring out the bikes and so she is with my husband in a cdc prep class and there you know we get to the park he's doing a little walking with her before training starts and she sees a little kid on a scooter and her brain went into tag power sports mode and she lost it i mean she tipped over into non-productive arousal um there were vocalizations she it was like flying a kite on the end of the lead. I mean, she just couldn't, and it didn't matter. It would not have mattered what he did in that moment, you know, steak, chicken, cheese, hot dog, tug toys, like all the excited voices, like she was done and she needed, because she's a teenager, right? She doesn't have those um, self-soothing and coping strategies really narrowed in yet. And so it took her a long time to recover. So once we noticed that happened, we were like, "Wow, that was a little more than we expected. Right. And that's definitely something we need to work on. So for her, bringing her to, um, you know, trailheads where there's going to be mountain bikes and like working on relaxation at the car and seeing bikes and scooters and skateboards from a really far distance away where her brain can still work. And she sees them and she hears them and she notices them, but she's so far away that it's kind of like, "Mm, no big deal. Right. And she's engaging with me and taking food and working on relaxation. And, you know, as the summer has progressed, we're getting closer and closer to what that race setup might look like with her tethered to a car, pretty close to all the excitement, you know, and by slowly breaking that process down, starting really far away, starting with easy skills she knows, and then slowly, you know, kind of moving towards that end goal, that's kind of helped us and her, right, manage this arousal around this thing that has become super exciting for her.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, And sometimes it's hard because you can't always predict. You know um, uh-huh. what they find rousing or what they remember from the experience so you know like I, and because dogs also don't generalize well and they tend to be very specific you don't always know what snapshot they've taken of the thing so yeah. obviously you know for daisy scooters were very relevant scooter means running yes. um you know and not every dog would have made that connection but to her mm-hmm. it was and so a lot of times you know a lot of times you, you just get surprised into it because yeah. Yeah, I guess we, we learned that this means that, okay, well now, and then that's, you know, now you we got to work on it. Yeah. Now we have to back. That's
0: my cue to start developing a training yeah. plan to, uh, uh now we know what,
1: what we have to work on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's important too, to discuss, you know, along with this arousal, the potential risk of injury physically, you know, we already know that our baby puppies and our teenagers do not have good body awareness, right? So that's kind of like a a well-known thing about dogs. If you watch them running around and playing chase, they usually look a little more awkward and like their front end is power control and the rear is just along for the ride. Like they don't really know where their body is in time and space. And just simply being a teenager, (laughs) you know, and not having good body awareness and proprioception Increases our likelihood of injury, but then we also introduce arousal into the mix, and that can shift things for our dogs too.
1: Definitely, because a, they're likely to just go um, a lot harder than their body can handle, or that they know they can handle, um, and because they're excited to do so That's why you really want to be careful about your warm-up routine, and I would definitely include that into your like training again. Can we have a calm? warm-up routine, because if we're flying off the handle to warm up, it's not a very good warm-up. Um, so, you know, because they won't warm, they'll be ready to go. And a lot of times, too, what's difficult with teenagers is that it did not going to give you a whole lot of signs or signals that they're tired, that they're hurt, that they're not moving right. And sometimes even it's hard for us to tell because they're like, well, you always move funky because you're out of proportion and your legs you know you're all legs and, and and head and nothing else is so it can be really hard to see how sound our teenagers are at any given point um and a lot of times because they do things uh you know a million percent at the a time they'll go too hard you know they won't slow themselves down um, they'll run into things very um frequently and then uh, you know something like sharp turns, you know, changes in directions. I mean they won't kind of ease into it. They'll just go, and then at the last second, shit, 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 I'm turning, oh my God. And you know, the butt will go one way, the head will go the opposite way, the spine is trying to hold on to their life. <laughs> Uh, And so, you know, you have a lot of those, like, I would say, a lot of soft tissue injuries are pretty common, even with teenagers that are not doing any type of sports, like even just playing and you see them, like, I'm just going to jump over the five stairs. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Face blank. And it's like, but like an adult wouldn't do that. You know, you wouldn't see an adult, either they would make it because they've practiced and they've assessed where the thing is, or they would just go down slowly. Um, But teenagers will very very frequently just miss completely because again they're not aware of where their body is also because they've just most of them have just had like a pretty significant growth spurt where they went from being a tiny baby and then they spent a few weeks you know a, a month or two now they're like double the size they were so it, it takes some use to right moving all that mass around and, and controlling all that mass plus their joints are still not for the most part, fused, but there's still a lot of like wiggle wobble room in there where things are not where they're supposed to be. So it's very easy again for them to kind of get out of sorts. Um, and I would I would say especially be careful of like um, you know dehydration and energy levels because teenagers will go way past their exhaustion point. Oh, ah, I can't keep going. No, you're you're literally you falling asleep standing up, but I can I can still I, I can still do it. So you'll want to, you know, like have a timer on or be like check time very frequently. And then even if your dog seems um, ready for more, I would stick to either a set distance or a set time. And know we're doing 30 minutes and then we're done. If you want to do more, awesome. We'll do a little bit more next time, uh, but being really strict about it so that you're not again, um, pushing your dog past their, their point. Cause you know, young buddies, yes, they do recover quickly, but, A lot of these things take a toll over time and so then you know usually the bill comes about six, seven years later and you're like I don't know why we have a torn ACL. I know why because remember that thing when your puppy was like 11 months old and they jumped off the cliff that's why. Yeah.
0: You know, and the other thing too, with dog power sports, when we're doing training runs with teenagers, it's like slow, slow, slow (laughs) ride your brakes, you know, don't let them go as fast as they want to, because they're not coordinated and, and muscled up yet enough to handle, you know, fast turns at high speeds, um, with all of those trail obstacles. So, you know, being mindful about which trail you're going to take them to and how fast you're going to go with them, you know, keeping things short and sweet to not only build those strong foundations, but also to prevent burnout, to prevent doing too much and physically hurting them. Even when they say, no, I can do more. I want more. Well, that's great. That's a great place to end, right? Because we always want to be able to come back to it with them wanting more and not overdoing it. And then we've got, you know, a flat dog that doesn't enjoy the thing anymore.
1: Yeah, no, I would consider, you know, teenage dogs when you do go out training um, as like a newbie person, right? If you are new to dog powered sport and you are getting on a scooter for the first time, do you want to go into like a nice flat open field or do you want to go down the cliff with the ravine with the super narrow tail and then there's like trees in the, you know, uh, same thing with teenagers. I would not personally take any of my teenage dogs on like a super narrow trail where very Turny, twisty turny trail because we would die, like somebody would get hurt like, me probably yeah, more than wrapped
0: them. around a tree
1: <laughs> yeah well i said left but we went right so now here we are um and i would do something on the same vein like super busy trails where you're going to have to pass a lot of distractions um because the likelihood that your dog is going to be able to do it uh or do it well or very low and then you're either setting up yourself for um problems you know that your dog either gets into a fight with another dog on the trail or runs into somebody and knocks them down or knocks you down and also that your dog is going to get those experiences right of "Mm, the trail it's kind of fun the running part is fun but the rest of it I don't like Mm
0: -hmm. Um, or vice versa you know if they're super super social like I love running and when I see other people on the trail I can just tackle them and it's great (laughs) right like you got to be mindful about what kind of behaviors that you're reinforcing too Um,
1: because again remember that whole, like, you know, we did take a snapshot and we don't really know what's in your picture type of stuff. Um, You could very well have a dog who goes, oh, when we hooked the bike, that's when we go tackle people. That's got it, let's do it. And so then it's really hard to backtrack from there. So I would definitely, I would rather move too slowly and, and feel like, okay, we're kind of doing the same thing over and over and not progressing as much as we want to and then be safe and then also set up really good foundations because it's, I mean, you know, once you have an adult, once you're past the dumb teenage phase, it's very easy to make up those gains, right? Because they got it, they uh, have the foundations, you have everything, and then it's very easy to progress very quickly from there. Whereas uh-huh. if you miss it at this point and set up bad habits, it's much harder to backtrack and like, correct them. Um, so I, I would much rather do it, you know. Okay yeah you did really well, I, I think you could do more, but we're going to do that one again just to make sure that this was a fluke and we're consistent and then we'll go to the next level, and I would say for everything, not just for dog power sports but. <clears throat> something with outings with my teenagers, you know just because we handled um, lows on a Friday morning with two people in it does not mean we're going to the farmers market tomorrow let's try right. lows at four. And see if we can handle that. Okay, now let's try lows on the weekend and see how that goes. And then we'll do the farmer's market, right? Even if my dog sails through it every time, because I would rather, again, do it. It's too easy. And they go, that was a piece of cake. And and go, yeah, because also you're building their confidence, you know, tenfold. Because they go, oh, that was so easy. And look, yeah. I paid attention and I, I was able to heal. And I was able to do all of these like fancy things in the store. But then, when you do go to the farmers market, they go, "Okay, it's a little bit different, but really not that much." And it's very easy for them to just kind of fall into line. Whereas if you do, you know, lows at you know, ten in the morning on a Friday, and then Sunday afternoon at the fair, um, that's very two very different pictures, and it's going to be hard for your dog to kind of go. Well, I don't know what to do because this is mm-hmm. I've never done this before type of stuff.
0: Right? Yeah. You know, it's whenever we're talking about training our dogs, you know as professional trainers, like when we go into a client's home, we're we're looking to set the dog up for success and the human for success, right? And so when I'm working with any dog, but especially a teenager who I know that it's going to be quick for them to get into a high arousal state, they don't have the ability to self-soothe, um, they don't have a huge reinforcement history of known behaviors, right? Like they're still young. Yeah. Um, so knowing all of these things, when I'm going to set training session up. I really want to do what I can to almost make it foolproof. Like the chances of something undesired happening are so low to none. Right. I mean, real world things happen. But, you know, like you mentioned, I'm going to the same trail to run them until we really nail that trail and the dog is confident and the dog is comfortable and the dog knows what they're doing and they're responsive to cues, you know, and I'm going super early before other people and other dogs are there. Um, I'm avoiding places when possible where I know there's going to be off leash dogs. Right. And once my dog can kind of manage that, then I'm slowly shifting that trail. For me, and I know everybody's going to kind of have their own way of doing things, but for me, I tend to separate, at least for my teenagers, my work on dog-powered sports and building directionals and building solid harness work. I separate that from like my working on excitability and working on trail distractions. I'll tend to take the dog out on a long line or like doing some canny hiking, something where the picture is a little bit different, but we're seeing the people, we're seeing the dogs because at a much slower speed, it's going to be much easier for me to work with my dog on kind of handling that excitability because- with our teenagers, it, it is normal for them to be excited by things around them, right? Our uh, prey drive might get a little boost, or I want to go say hi to people and dogs, or even I have emotions about people and dogs, right? All of these can become bigger. So talk to me for a minute about like taking dogs out on long lines, taking dogs out on canny hikes and working on it, learning to ignore some of those distractions, like some of the setups you might do or some of the real world practice that you're doing to help the dog start building more desired, you know, behaviors around them.
1: Sure. So a lot of times my progression with most teenagers is usually will go first on a very quiet trail that I know very well. So I know where to watch out for. And usually I'll put them on a long line or like a 10 foot leash so that they can move around. And we're working on just basic, just there's nothing around except the woods and the critters that live in the woods. Can we walk nicely? Not in a heel, not with tension. Can you walk without dragging me all over the place? Yes, excellent. Next time we'll go when it's a little bit busier. And we'll see if we can, you know, when people approach a lot of times too with most of my teenagers, regardless of how they feel about people and dogs or distractions so you know from my puppies who don't care to my puppies who will just die to go say hi to everything they can see. Um, same rules apply. When something approaches us, we move off the trail and we wait for it to pass before we go. And the reason we do that is, um, there's multiple ways, but one is by stepping off the trail, you're clearly telling your, your dog, we're not going to interact because we're moving out of the way. If it's a dog that's coming up, or even people, because you moved out of the way, they're less likely to stare at you, engage with you, or engage with your dog, so they're not going to get your puppy excited. Um, it's easier to kind of backtrack too, so that if you know the person passing goes, oh my God, happy, And your dog starts to go, oh my God. Okay, we're gonna keep going a little bit more sideways. We're already halfway there instead of having to make this huge leap to get to quote unquote safety. Um, B, I find with a lot of teenagers, even though stillness is very hard for them, motion is exciting in and of itself. So moving forward is kind of gets them going. Moving forward towards something that's exciting compounds that excitement level and now we have to go faster and oh my god it's almost there and you can see them like just shaking and getting ready to explode so usually by stepping off and then usually you can backtrack a little bit so I'll do like two three steps backwards to get my dog to disengage turn away from the oncoming thing so they're not staring at it move out the way (sighs) take a breath and because we're still we can watch calmly it's much easier for them to watch calmly I also like it because it's a nice way to give them interaction, right? Remember that you know, so, social dogs don't have to play and be touched and be you know, in like physical contact in order to fill up their meters. They can just be in proximity and watching other dogs and other people can fill their meters. And so a lot of times, hey, if you're calm and just hang out, you get to watch the person come and go and then hang out a little bit longer. And when you're ready, we'll keep going. If you lose your marbles, we have to backtrack and get out of there and you can't have that interaction whatsoever. And initially, you know, usually typically the first two, three times that we do this, um, usually we have to step up pretty far off the trail. And a lot of times we have to go, well, well, we're going to keep going because you're having feelings and it's just too much. But very quickly, I find across the board, teenagers catch on very quickly because it's very regimented. It's always the same. We do it, you know, when they see the thing, okay, come on this way, let's go off the trail. That calms them down already because we're kind of changing the picture and they have to kind of, oh, wait, I need to focus because we're changing direction instead of that fixating something that's approaching. And then usually, yeah, by the third walk, it's much easier to get them off the trail. They're able to watch things usually pretty calmly or just mild excitement, you know, typical, you know, wiggly body, and then maybe a little bit of, hey, oh my God, hi, hey. uh, but not like huge meltdown where I'm just gonna scream my head off because you're 10 feet away from me and I can't make it. And oh my God, how, how would I survive? Um, so that's my go-to, and then from there, once we have those, and you know, it's easy to step off the trail, um, there's no huge feelings, then we'll start doing it to busier, busier trails, and then stepping less and less off to the side until we can kind of do just a really short pause wait thing passes, okay, let's go, and it's super easy. And then it's very easy for them to go in stores because it works the same way. If we're in an aisle and somebody's coming, wait, the dog just pauses, the person passes, very nice, we keep going, super easy, and it's very easy for them to do it in lots of different types of contexts. And because it's an easy sequence, right? turning around, stepping off the trail, the dog has to do nothing, right? They just have to follow you. There's no thinking on their part. They don't have to like be, a, oh my God, what do you want me to do? I don't care if they sit, I don't care if they touch, as long as you're not visibly having a meltdown and falling apart, you can you can stand, you can lay down, You can you can sit, I don't care what you do, as long as you're calm you can just hang out, no problem whatsoever. And so because it's flexible and they're not feeling like they're being pressured or asked to do this huge, impossible task of sitting when something is passing, they're more likely to do it because it's so easy for them and they're pretty much almost getting free reinforcement at that point of, okay, you changed direction, I followed you and now you're feeding me cookies nonstop. Uh, Then they're very likely to do it again right because it's like this human is dumb we just step off to the side and then she just feeds me I didn't do anything. But that's usually what I do with most of my teenagers I try to do setups where they think I'm the dumb one and that they're getting free food because they didn't do anything. um, Instead of it being that's again super taxing because for teenagers, even the simplest thing like a sit is taxing it's annoying it's boring ah oh, just like human teenagers you know put your dishes away they're going to do it but like 20 hours from now like, why don't you just do it now you're right there oh, because it's oh, so much work to put one thing away um and dogs you know teenage dogs tend to do very much the same thing so I tend to not cue a lot my teenagers typically if you see me out with the teenagers there's very little you won't hear me say sit or you know here or Things Usually there's a lot of um, feedback, good job, oh good puppy, this way, good job, that was very good, so that they're getting a lot of like, well cool, I'm doing well, and it keeps that engagement level on me because I'm doing a lot of talking, but there's very little direct, you know, directions and do this, do this, do that, it's really just, let me guide you, and when you follow and go along with the plan, um, I'm going to market and pay you so that it's, again, super easy for them, and they go, oh, this human is fun, A, Because I get a lot of reinforcement, for them. plus they don't force me to do things I don't like, or they don't make me do boring stuff, you know, repetitive stuff. It's just fun. Um, And I think it goes a long way to building that strong relationship with your dog, because I think a lot of times too, with teenagers and with puppies, you know, we use a lot of our cues like obedience cues as interrupters for everything and as a way to micromanage them. Leave it, don't drop it. Here. Can, don't do, and it's like, well, but, you know, puppies will go eat mulch, they, they will, they'll all do it. It's not like your puppy is not special because they want to eat rocks. They all want to eat rocks. Yes, we cannot eat rocks, that's a given. So let's not walk next to rocks, you know, make it manage the environment. Um, but guess what? You grabbed a stick, it's fine. You can munch on your stick, you found a pine, pine cone, or there's a leaf, you can chew the leaf, it's totally fine. Um, so that, you know, again, we're, I want my dogs, especially my teenagers, to see me as their gateway to fun, right? When the human is involved, we have access to all the things we like versus the human always prevents me from the fun or takes me away from the fun or limits the fun or restricts the fun, because that's um, just planting the seed of a really like conflictual and um, uh, not just a great, great relationship. And depending on the dog that you have, if you have a very soft, happy, eager to please dog, they typically will do fine with that. They'll just compromise. It's like, well, it's not great, but it's fine. You know, I don't have feelings about it. But sometimes when you have either you know, hard dogs or dogs that have strong opinions or very independent breeds, uh, they go, yeah, right. Let me, let me tell you what I think about this. And then you have like true conflict, um, yeah. which can be dangerous for everybody involved. Or you have a dog that completely checks out from any type of training, anything that looks like it might be training-related, they'll go, nope, not interested, don't want to do it.
0: And that's where we're going to leave you guys for today. But don't worry, our conversation isn't quite done yet. Camille and I continue our chat in our next podcast episode, so be sure to stay tuned. And if you're feeling a little overwhelmed with your teenager, have no fear. Camille's got some help for you. Check out the show notes for a link to the website where you can find a pre recorded webinar all about managing arousal. It's going to include games and training tips that you can implement at home to help your dog learn how to get jazzed up and calm back down, plus some practical tips to help you take your training from in home into the real world. So, until next time, have fun chasing tails on the trails.